today's reading, Paul defends his right to preach the gospel to the Galatians as an authentic messenger of God. We're reading from Galatians chapter 1, verse 10 to chapter 2, verse 10. Am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Or am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preached is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, my immediate response was not to consult in human being. I did not go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went into Arabia. Later, I returned to Damascus. Then, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Cephas and stayed with him 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. I assure you before God that what I am writing you is no lie. Then I went to Syria and Cilicia. I was personally unknown to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only heard the report. The man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they praised God because of me. Then, after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. I took Titus along also. I went in response to a revelation, and meeting privately with those esteemed as leaders, I presented to them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. I wanted to be sure I was not running and had not been running my race in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. This matter arose because some false believers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. We did not give in to them for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. As for those who were held in high esteem, whatever they were makes no difference to me. God does not show favoritism. They added nothing to my message. On the contrary, they recognised that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised. For God, who was at work in Peter as an apostle to the circumcised, was also at work in me as an apostle to the Gentiles. James, Cephas and John 
those esteemed as pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognised the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I had been eager to do all along. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to St. Stephen's. My name is Prash. I'm the senior minister here uh, at St. Stephen's. And a very warm welcome if you're uh, joining us for the first time or you found us on the feed this morning. Great to have you with us. Uh, The good news is that we'll have in-person services starting on Sunday, the 31st of October. So as uh, Matt said, there's only a couple of Sundays to go, Freedom Day, so to speak, Uh, was a couple of days ago, obviously, and now, even though we've ticked over to 80%, and technically we'd be allowed to have church meet together, vaccinated and unvaccinated, on Sunday the 24th, we've decided to stay with the 31st for a few reasons. First of all, um, we have a lot of logistical preparation to do uh, in the building. We're actually in the process of upgrading some of the uh, infrastructure here in the building to ensure that it, it's, uh, the ventilation is, is good for this next season. And, and also, we, um, we, we have established our rosters for this next couple of weeks, so we want to run with those. But we're really looking forward to meeting. Um, one, of the, one of the tweaks we're going to have with our service is that at our 7.45 service, we will only have vaccinated people. So if you've had your double dose uh, vaccination, then come to the se- you can come to the 7.45 if you want to. If you haven't, we want church to be open to everyone. And so our other services, 9.45 and 5.30, are open to vaccinate, unvaccinated as well. We'll have our usual COVID-safe practices, uh, for example. But that's just a note, particularly if you're someone who uh, normally does go to the 7.45 service and you're watching along this morning, that's just information for you. Um, now, I'm, I'm about to spend some time reflecting on that passage from Galatians, which we've just read. Would you, pr- would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word And we pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would speak to our hearts and minds this morning. Make us more like the Lord Jesus Christ by pointing us to him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've we've just started a series on this New Testament letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Galatia. It's called Galatians. And last week, we talked about Paul's contention that one of the great products of the Christian faith is joy. And actually, we've titled our whole whole series, uh, Christianity, A Joyful Spirituality. A question mark, actually. It's a question. We're asking ourselves, is it legitimate to say that Christianity is fundamentally a religion, a spirituality that leads to joy? That's Paul. He believes that's exactly one of the fruits of the Christian faith, is joy. And he said last week in the passage that the foundation of that joy is holding on to this gospel message that though we are sinful and live in a broken world, God has worked through a divine sacrifice to to rescue his people and to draw them into an eternal story of praise. That's the gospel. And Paul said you need to hold on to all parts of it. You need to hold on to your sinfulness you need to hold on to the grace of God and to the promises to come of what's to come. Now, the question, actually, that's bubbling away, and it's the question that Pippi actually introduced for us in the Spotlight segment is, how do we trust Paul? It's the question that the Galatians are themselves challenged with. Why should we listen to Paul? Why should we listen to him? 
And to answer that question, Paul gives us two, he gives us two answers. The first is a carryover from the last reading that we had last week and is found again in this morning's passage. And he says in verses 11 and 12, he says this, First of all, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preached is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any man, nor as I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. In other words, Paul says, the reason you need to listen to what he has to say is that what he has to say comes from Jesus himself. Christ gave him the message. That's the reminder of what we said last week, actually. That the fundamental authority of Paul's message is not Paul, is not the apostles who commissioned, who might have commissioned Paul, no, it's Jesus who first commissioned Paul and gave him his message. And, and we have an account in Acts that backs that up. So Paul says on one hand, we, we should listen to him because Jesus gave him this message. But there is another reason, and that's the reason that he really spends a lot of time reflecting on this morning. And it's this, it's not just that Paul... Uh, was given this message, but Paul himself believed it and was transformed by it. See, Paul says uh, they, he believed it, and that's why we should listen to him. That's why the Galatians should listen to him. Now, you see, you see Paul's belief come out in verses 13 to 24 in chapter 1 here, where Paul tells a bit of a, he tells his own life story, so to speak, what we might sometimes call a testimony of his life. And we see two distinct phases in Paul's life. We see before he met Jesus. So Paul met Jesus on a road to Damascus. And that's the account that Luke tells us about in his early history of, of the church in Acts. But here, Paul describes his life before meeting Jesus in, in a very particular way. So in verses 13 to 14, he says, For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church. Paul persecuted the church. He was so anti this little group of people who'd started following Jesus and tried to destroy it. In fact, in Acts, we hear that Paul went around killing people and dragging men and women off and putting them in jail, we're told. And then he says, I was extremely zealous for the traditions of my father. So we have these two pictures. One, Paul opposed fundamentally to the early church. And on the other side, Paul working strenuously, zealously, he says, for the Jewish religion. And, and, but then Paul says his whole life changed. And his story is a before and after. That's before and after we start to see in the rest of that section from verses 17 through to 24 a picture of the new Paul, the thing that has happened to him as a result of hearing and believing this message which Jesus first brought to him. He says, first of all, he didn't go off and see anyone else. He went off to Arabia and Damascus, he says, by himself. This is extraordinary transformation because Paul, we, we read beforehand, was a person who was very zealous. He was climbing the ladder. He, he was about impressing people. He says he was about activity. right? He was about religious activity. But after he hears this message, his whole outlook changes. He, the first thing he does isn't go off to the temple go off and offer a, a spiritual sacrifice, the first thing he actually goes off and does, he goes and does some self-reflection. He puts his own life under the microscope of this message. And what's more, Paul then says at the end of uh, chapter 1, verses 23 and 24, that he became known as someone not who persecuted the church, but someone who preached the message of the church, the message of the gospel, this news that Jesus had given him. This fundamental change from someone who sought to sacrifice other people 
to someone who was sacrificing himself for the sake of this message. And it's not just this transformation in his activity, the things he was doing, it's a transformation in his focus as well. You see that Paul becomes a person who's focused on completely new things. So at the end of chapter 2, that, the reading that Di read for us, chapter 2, verse 10, the apostles say to Paul, the one thing we want you to keep doing is having concern for the poor. And Paul says, that's the very thing I was eager to do. Paul has gone from someone who climbed the social ladder, who prided himself on being the best of the best, to now having a distinct concern for the poor, for the marginalised, for the weak, the vulnerable. It's a huge change in his focus. And what's more, Paul, who had gone from someone who wanted to shut down the gospel, who wanted to stop this message from from spreading, to someone who now spreads the message. So we read that when he's greeted by churches, they know him by no other distinctive than the fact that he is the one who used to persecute the church but now preaches, preaches the message of the church. So there's a fundamental change in his focus. He's someone who's gone from uh, you know, social climbing, so to speak, to being concerned with the socially poor, with the impoverished. And he's gone from someone who wanted to destroy the gospel to someone who wants to share it, who wants to spread it. I think there's a real lesson for us here. And it's that when you really believe something, it should transform your life. When I was at high school, in year 11 and 12, I went to a boarding school. I was not a, I was not a Christian at the time. Uh, I mean, I'd heard the message many times, so I had not come to believe it. In fact, there was a kid in, in a year below me who was a Christian guy. In fact, he was, a, he was a child of missionaries, and so he was in boarding school with me. His parents were overseas missionaries. Uh, and he was a pretty, pretty average guy, but he was a Christian. And a lot of the guys in the school used to give him a hard time about being a Christian, a hard time. And I used to chime in. They were all paying him out, so I'd, I'd hop in there too. And, and we gave him a hard time about all sorts of things, but we gave him a hard time about his faith as well, about being a Christian. We used to belittle and mock him. Now, what's interesting, I reflect on my life, is that I became a believer in my first year of university. And very soon afterwards, it was interesting how God put me in places where I, I was called and encouraged to help high schoolers come to faith. I also had to account for my behaviour as a, as a high school because some of my friends were friends with, with, with this guy, some of the Christian friends I'd made. And, and, and so there was this transformation that had to take place in my life where I first came to acknowledge the mistakes I'd made. But interestingly, God actually puts me in a place where one of my primary responsibilities at the time was to help high schoolers come to know Jesus. See, the question of believing the gospel is not merely an intellectual question. I want to ask you, do you really believe the gospel is true? And the way you'll answer that is not just can you articulate it, or, or do you even agree philosophically with the premises behind it? But has it transformed your life? That's the real challenge, actually, of this passage, I think. I mean, we'll talk about why we should listen to Paul. But I, I want us personally to look at the transformation that's taking place in Paul's life. Here is someone who loves the poor and shares his faith. That's what it looks like to be someone who's transformed by the gospel. Have you been transformed by the gospel? Do you really believe it? Has it moved from your head into your heart and out into your life? 
Actually, Paul tells us this transformation because he says, this is the very reason, Galatians, you should believe what I'm telling you. This is not a message that I've just given you and then gone off and, and applied a different message to my own life. No, no, I have walked lockstep with what I have taught you. The gospel has transformed my own life too. I commend it to you because of how it has impacted me. And that's the story. I mean, that's, I think that's one of the reasons why we really can believe the gospel because we see this story in the early church and in the church ongoing, people's lives transformed in radical ways, in sacrificial ways because of this message. It really is worth listening to. Paul is worth listening to. The gospel is worth listening to. The scriptures are worth listening to. Now, the question that actually still sits with us, though, is, see, think about Paul. He's the guy who set up the Galatian church. He, he's the person who brought the gospel to them, to whom they all first committed themselves to a few years prior. So why is it that having believed Paul once, they now don't believe him anymore? This is a really important question, because... That actually is a question that every Christian has to come to terms with. See, the Galatians is a warning. You can hear the gospel and believe it once, but then be at risk of leaving it behind later. And why are they at risk of this? Why is Paul so concerned about this? Well, I think we, we hinted at it last week, but it wasn't really in the passage last week. It certainly is in this, this morning's passage. Paul says you can leave the gospel behind because of the influence of other people. He says the Jewish leaders have come in and they're teaching not just the gospel of grace, that God graciously intervenes, but that you also need to do something. You need to hold on to certain Jewish ceremonial laws. In this case, it's circumcision that's implied is the law they're talking about. In other words, you need to add a little bit to get saved. We have, we have ways of thinking about God's work in our own world like that, where we think, oh yes, God is very kind to us. He does like 90% of the work and we just do the last 10%. You know, God makes us better, but then we need to keep being better. That's how we think about it. Paul says, no, that's not it. And of course, Paul's message is not just his message, but it's the message of the, of the other apostles and the disciples. Here's Peter in Acts 15. Paul actually had to challenge Peter, but after being challenged, Peter agreed. And so he says in this passage, no, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that we are saved. Or here's the apostle John, who wasn't actually part of this conversation, but holds the same position. This is love, not that we love God. In other words, not that we brought something to the table, but that he loved us. In other words, that he did it all for us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And if you think it's just the apostles, well, Jesus says it too. Jesus says, all those who the Father gives me will come to me. In other words, the initiative of being saved lies with God. And whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. In other words, the assurance of being saved lies with God. See, the fundamental message, not just of Paul, you might want to write Paul off, but the message of the whole of the New Testament and of Jesus himself is that God does the saving. Now, the Galatians, you see, the challenge for them, though, was that they would rather the approval of those Jewish leaders than this fundamental message which had been preached to them. So you've got to remember that church in Galatia is small and the Jewish diaspora was larger and more influential than them. And Paul says, it is because you fear the approval of others that you're willing to let this gospel go or change it or tweak it. 
You see it because he, this language of approval is actually weaved through the whole of this section of the passage. You see him talking about pleasing people a lot. In fact, he says this in verse 10 as he opens our reading this morning. He says, am I now trying to win the approval of men? Can you see the dichotomy that's set up? Or of God? Or am I trying to please people? If I'm trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. Paul is couching his whole conversation with the Galatians into the terms of approval and people-pleasing. And he says, he says, you need to be warned, Galatians, because you're about to let You're about to let this gospel go in order to please people. And you can't please people and serve God at the same time. And you know, we live in a culture of people pleasing. We are a people who long the approval of other people. I was reading a book by a guy called Mike Cosper called Reclaiming Wonder. And in it, he tells this great story of this guy who's in a coffee shop. And he says, the guy comes in, it's like Starbucks or something, right? He's got his book in his hand, he orders a coffee, he sits down at the table, the coffee gets delivered. You can see what he's come here to do. Sip his coffee, read his book, reflect, you know. It sounds all wholesome, right? Anyway, the guy takes about 15 minutes just placing the book and the coffee in the right position so that then he can take a picture of it and put it on his social media feed. And, and, then, and then Cosper says... You know, then he takes a sip of his coffee and he gets his book out, he flicks through for about 45 seconds, then closes it up, gets his phone out, checks his feed, how many likes has he got? Cosper says the real kicker is this, he walks past his table later and he notices the title of the book is The Doctrine of God. His point is, we can sacrifice God in order to gain the approval of others. That's our constant practice But the problem you see is that, and the problem for for approval seekers, for people who love approval, who are people pleasers, is that the gospel will inevitably put you in a collision course with popular opinion. It really will. See, in our society, we want people to be virtuous. We want nice people to get in. But the gospel says virtue doesn't matter. It says you're not virtuous enough. You never will be. And the gospel says the only way you get in is with Jesus. With Christ you're in. Without Christ you're out. That's the gospel. And in a people-pleasing, approval-based culture where we're all driven by this drug of affirmation, we are always going to be tempted to leave the gospel behind. In fact, I think the great insight of this passage this morning is that most people don't doubt the gospel because of intellectual claims. They doubt them because of existential ones. You will be challenged to leave the gospel behind, to sell out on the truth of the gospel, not because you found a philosophical reason against it primarily, but because someone you love doesn't believe it. Or someone you love lives a certain way that the gospel and the scriptures say is unhelpful and is, is not God-shaped. That's when you'll be most at risk to leave the gospel behind. Because the opinion of people, especially the people we love, is so important to us. And if you think you're not a people pleaser, I tell you, if you're a workaholic, you're probably a people pleaser. If you're working so hard that it's damaging your life and your relationships, it's probably because you're trying to earn the approval of your boss or your spouse or your parents or your cohort or your teacher. And if you're driven by approval, if your drug is affirmation, you are always at risk of losing the gospel, says Paul. Always. 
So how do we, and if you lose the gospel, of course, then your life is not radically transformed, is it? It's not a life that loves the poor and the impoverished. It's not a life that longs to share your faith. You have none of the resources to share your faith if you're driven by people's approval because you'll never share the whole faith. You'll never share the deepest convictions of your heart because your most, your, most of your convictions are around pleasing people. So how do we fearlessly hold on to the gospel? How, do, how does Paul do it? How does Paul do it? Well, it's really interesting to look at the way that he understands the gospel and he describes and he marvels over the wonder and joy of the gospel. If you go back to uh, verse 15, this is, what, this is how Paul describes the turning point, what he realized. He says, but when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb, he realizes that the gospel is the message of God's grace before zeal. Before effort, before energy. See, God had his eye on Paul before Paul was ever zealous for the traditions of his fathers. God had his eye on him. But he goes on, he says this, and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me. That's such an amazing word. It actually could also be translated delighted. He was delighted to reveal his son in me. He was delighted to make Jesus true to me. He's delighted to open up my heart to Jesus. He was delighted to take away the clouds and show me the truth of the gospel and of his grace and his mercy to me. Paul says that in spite being a, in spite being a persecutor of the church, and you know, when he persecuted the church and Jesus confronts him, he doesn't say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting my church? He says, why are you persecuting me? Because that is how deeply Jesus felt it when Paul dragged his own people off to jail. He personally was affected by this. And yet it is Christ who delights in saving this man. It's Christ who delights in saving this man. This is so extraordinary. And if, in case you think Paul's just getting carried away, this is the theme of how he understands the gospel. In Ephesians 1, chapter, chapter 1, verse 5, he says, He predestined us for adoption to sonship through Christ in accordance with his pleasure, his delight and his will. He chooses to save in accordance with his greatest delight. His greatest delight is to save people. Or here it is in 1 Corinthians 1, 21. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was what? Pleased. Pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those people. He was pleased to save people through the gospel. This is how Paul understands God delights to save sinners. Of course, it's the story at the heart of Jesus' parable of the prodigal son. God delights to save the sinner. One of my favorite reality TV shows is Beauty and the Geek. I'm sorry. I know I've probably lowered your estimation of me within seconds there. Beauty and the Geek. You probably, if you haven't heard of it, here's how the story goes. They basically get a bunch of really attractive girls, um, but they're not, they're not, they don't appear to be that intellectually you know, equipped, so to speak. They're, they're lovely ladies, but they're, they're not super smart. And they pair them up, in a totally platonic sense, with these total intellectual heavyweights of guys, right? Who are, let's put it this way, aesthetically not that gifted. You know, they're, they're, they're a bit rough around the edges. But the whole point, the whole premise of the story is, can someone who is intellectually a heavyweight have respect for someone who's not? And can someone who's physically attractive enjoy being with someone who's not? Can it actually be possible? Can they be treated like equals on either, either spectrum? 
And, and the great moments in the story, the, the thing that producers love to bring out is exactly, that is possible. That's the fairy tale, isn't it? Beauty and the Geek, Beauty and the Beast. It's the idea that someone who is immensely beautiful might find pleasure in someone who's not. And I think that storyline is actually just a hint of our deepest longings, which the gospel really is answering. See, God, who is immensely beautiful, and the beauty of his holiness, we're told, loves the unholy. Why? Why? Because his own son, who he was well pleased with, gave up the pleasure of his father. Gave up the pleasure of his father on the cross. And there he is, in his writhing writhing and, and destroyed body, disfigured body, takes our place. That's the gospel. That's the wonder of the gospel. That's the joy of the gospel is that the heavenly father is delighted in you and offers his son for you. Will you accept it? Will you accept it? And I think to the extent that we believe that gospel, to the extent that we really believe that we are offered the divine approval of the Father, that he delights in us apart from our efforts, apart from our successes or failures. He delights in us apart from our sinfulness. He delights in us so much that he'd give us his only son. That's the gospel. And to the extent that we believe it, believe it's really true, we find the resources to have a life transformed by that gospel. See, we can love people who are poor and lowly. We're not drawn just to the wealthy and the, and the socially upright because the poor and the lowly remind us of our own spiritual state before the Lord and his extraordinary love. And we are not, we're not enslaved by the approval of people because we have the approval of a father. And so we are free to share our faith with all its complexity and all its challenges pointing to all of its joy and beauty. So I really want to invite us as God's people, let us truly believe the gospel, the gospel which tells us that we have, we have the delight of the Father because of Christ's work. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that before we ever did anything to earn it, you delighted in us. And thank you for sending your Son who gave up the pleasure of, your, of you, his, his heavenly Father, so that we might, we might qualify for that delight. Lord, would you, dream, would you drive that approval deep into our hearts and free us so that we are people who live the kind of lives shaped by that gospel. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.